about my background and maybe one more thing to say is that uh, my entry point into the world of curating is uh, maybe a slightly odd one because um, uh, I studied art history but on the one hand I uh, started working also with a bookshop. I founded a bookshop in Berlin in 1999 together with um, two colleagues. Um, uh, we were all um, working in self-organized contexts and set up this bookshop as an infrastructure for our projects and as a space for the mediation of um, information in printed form, I guess, and also as a space in which uh, debates and discussions can happen that were usually centered around books, but to make books present uh, in the physical space, but also to give these um, debates a kind of um, uh, more manifest form. And um, so it was founded in Berlin, so uh, uh, which at that time uh, was undergoing a quite significant restructuring. So the bookshop was placed in this discussion about urbanism, about um, changing infrastructure for uh, social life, everyday reality. And um, the bookshop was also meant as a kind of intervention or comment uh, in these debates. And then another point, uh, I mentioned self-organized um, cultural practices, um, which was very important for me um, at some point as um, a kind of uh, form of cultural articulation besides research and writing, doing exhibitions that uh, were collaborative, that were hugely uh, politically driven. Baustadt Brandstadt, again, uh, dealing with um, yeah, mostly urbanism and um, uh, in relation to um, security discourses that also became more strongly visible in Europe um, in the 1990s, the show happened at 90, uh, 1998 at uh, the Neue Gesellschaft für Kunst, uh, one of the Kunstvereins in Berlin. A kind of um, anti-documentation show, one could say. Yeah, um, I wanted to sp speak today uh, more specifically about uh, three projects. Um, I know from past experiences in giving talks that uh, it's always uh, great to talk about past projects, and uh, there's always too much to talk about. Um, we had recently um, an artist talk by Peter Wechtler, uh, who's showing with us in Bergen at the moment, and he gave a talk at the Art Academy, and the title was 15 Years of Time. He tried to present his complete artistic output uh, from 15 Years of Time. It was um, a kind of a quite long talk. So I tried to break it down to three projects that all relate in a way to um, architecture and urbanism. Um, and uh, they relate quite specifically to cities and um, hence I wanted to also quickly uh, run through the institutions I worked for and in which these um, exhibitions took place or projects. Um, Künstler Stuttgart, as Johan mentioned, um, it's uh, also a very important um, platform for younger curators, organizers, and um, a place in which um, artists have quite a lot of space to produce new work. It's um, really a big building, six uh, stories with a very limited budget. Um, workshops, initially artist-run, artist-driven. Um, yeah, I worked later at Arnolfini in Bristol in England, um, quite different setup, a regional art center, also quite large, but um, working with a very heavy um, public agenda, 
So funding comes with a lot of, um, not obligations, but uh, there is a definitely um, a framework of uh, aims and deliverables. Uh, so curatorial work also happens under very different um, circumstances. Then uh, Index in Stockholm, I worked there starting in 2014. Um, a relatively small space, an exhibition space and then an office space with a bar that we added to the infrastructure um, situated on a canal in the center of the city. Um, Stockholm is uh, very centralized, one can say. A lot is happening in the inner city. The inner city is relatively small, but also very exclusive. Uh, rental prices are extremely high, and most cultural institutions um, were forced or chose to situate themselves um, in other parts of the city. There's um, a couple of organizations such as Tenster Kunsthal or Bocerka Kunsthal, uh, two main examples of um, arts institutions that work with um, cities outside, uh, parts of the city outside of the city center. But um, Index is one of the last remaining uh, more experimental places that uh, are situated in the city center and based in, a, yeah, in leftovers of uh, welfare state architecture, one could say. Yeah, this is the office slash uh, welcome slash bar space that we added. And then, um, yeah, now uh, I'm working since last year um, in Bergen, uh, on the coast in Norway. The building is purpose-built uh, as uh, a Kunsthalle uh, designed by Ole Landmark for Bergen Kunstvereining. Um, it used to be a one-story building with a natural uh, roof light. Uh, the second floor has been also developed uh, in the past years, so now there's no artificial, it's artificial light now, but um, these big windows still exist. I said I want to focus on uh, three thematic projects um, that deal with architecture. It's um, always easier to talk in a way about um, thematic projects or larger uh, group shows, even though I must say in my curatorial work usually Solo projects are really um, important. Um, I did a lot of uh, bigger shows, mostly with new productions with artists, and these usually are realized with these um, artist, artists, practitioners, uh, in response to a site and to a space. So they articulate also something that one could say, yeah, we reinvent in a way uh, an idea of um, how a space, an institution, could work, how it relates to the public, how it um, defines uh, uh, a kind of aim or ambition for art in such a specific context. So this is really like um, an important part of um, my practice. And um, yeah, I worked with artists like Simon Forti, Anna Bogigian, Jon Skog, Benedette Corporation, Oscar Tourzon, Willem de Roy, Marianne Amaché, historical projects uh, with Oscar Hansen, Cornelius Cardio, and so on. This is the current show we have uh, on at the moment with um, Peter Wechtler. I'm showing this also to show a bit, uh, at least something of um, the really beautiful spaces. This is one of the gallery spaces. Um, yeah, the roof lights I mentioned. This is a group of um, snow owls uh, that uh, Peter Wechtler created. Um, 
in response to the Nordic uh, context and um, they create a kind of um, situation where one is always um, watched by these owls. Yeah, the first project I wanted to talk about um, is, uh, we did it, uh, I organized it together with um, a long-standing collaborator, Jesko Fetzer, an architect for Künstler Stuttgart in 2008, uh, it's a while ago, um, called so uh, Social Diagrams, Planning Reconsidered. And to put it in a dry way, this show looked into an, a period uh, in the 60s and 70s where architects, urban planners, uh, designers tried to investigate uh, the mechanisms and um, uh, their own criteria uh, developed in uh, a planning process. So what's the kind of fundamental, what's the, the kind of basis on uh, which terms um, designers design? And we were interested in that um, as a kind of starting point uh, of a negotiation about yeah, the parameters of planning. How are cities built? How are objects designed? And how does that relate to everyday reality and uh, the needs of users? Uh, the image that was on the invitation card is um, a project by Nicholas Habraken and his um, foundation that he ran, Stichting Architectens Research. He developed a kind of uh, modular um, building system, a kind of uh, infill, infill packages that would allow people to live in flats and reshape their flat by moving walls. And they would work in a way uh, almost like, an in, like a kitchen system or so. And uh, his big uh, point was to create a metric system or a system, a measurement system of standards uh, that would allow to buy infill packages and um, a kind of universal system that he imagined uh, that would be used by architects worldwide. A lot of the research done by architects at the time was about uh, uh, an idea of rationalization, but ration rationalization um, as a means to become more clear and to become more uh, discursive about uh, the reasons and parameters of planning. So this is a maybe slightly absurd example from today's perspective, uh, a diagram by Horst Rittel, who used to be a professor at the Ulm School of Design and uh, was also um, afterwards, after the school closed, uh, a very prominent um, planner and writer about design in Germany. So this is a diagram that tries to uh, sketch out every step uh, in uh, the designer's um, mind uh, while coming to conclusion and making decisions in the design process. So not uh, trying to understand how a designer uh, makes a decision not just based on taste, but on a kind of, this, um, on, a, on, a, on criteria that are negotiable. This is all very heavily influenced by um, uh, cybernetics, obviously, um, trying to understand processes and how input and output uh, relate to each other and uh, trying to uh, eliminate noise, any kind of um, uh, uncontrollable um, interference with um, a process. The exhibition that we put together uh, was quite material heavy. Um, I think it was roughly 40 contributions, mostly historical, some also by artists dealing with um, similar issues but more from an artist's perspective and we let them collide happily in uh, the exhibition space. Was on was happening on two floors in a kind of um, almost like a, art fair booth um, style 
architecture of uh, temporary walls. Uh, I quickly show another couple of examples. Um, these are uh, student works from the Hochschule für Gestaltung, the Ulm School of Design. One of the most, I'm not sure if this is a, the school is known here, one of the most um, ambitious um, uh, design experiments in uh, Western Germany after the Second World War. The school saw itself as a kind of uh, uh, in the tradition of uh, Bauhaus, but with uh, a more heavily articulated uh, social uh, engagement, being really on the left side of politics, and um, it was closed in 1968 after uh, the school was uh, considered to be too radical and too challenging for uh, the government system. Uh, other examples include, for example, this, um, like uh, um, uh, a game. Uh, gaming used to uh, research and also test uh, processes of decision-making. This game, um, uh, it's called, uh, it's Gemeindespiel, um, uh, basically a game that simulated uh, development in a city uh, from 1968. The examples that we were most interested in were um, research by architects that uh, dealt more uh, decidedly with um, methods of participation and investigating uh, the role of users in uh, the decision-making process in design. Gaming, as I said, was one uh, method. And another method or approach was um, um, presented here by John Turner, an architect who was active between 1957 and 65 in Peru. And he looked into um, information, uh, informal settlements and uh, squatting areas uh, to research the relationship between uh, urbanization and homelessness. So he found out that um, actually those areas that were most heavily urbanized in a kind of Western or uh, first world sense were the areas that in the end worked the least for uh, the uh, inhabitants, um, many of them couldn't afford uh, the, uh, new houses, they were too expensive. Um, uh, and it turned out that uh, informal settlements that were do-it-yourself structures built by the people uh, um, using them worked better in terms of uh, affordability, but also created uh, clusters and of, of people and uh, neighborhoods where uh, the inhabitants had um, kind of networks that uh, helped them also to survive in um, other ways. So his approach to um, uh, do-it-yourself architecture, informal building structures, um, was that it's not only in an ethical way better because people can decide about their own lives, it's also more efficient. And then uh, another uh, very interesting case, um, um, 1963 to 74, uh, advocacy planning in America, uh, planners that um, understood the kind of heavy um, uh, uh, the involvement of, of, of planning in, in mechanisms of power and tried to engage for uh, powerless people as planners and giving them uh, a voice. One 
last example, also um, more on the absurd side, um, uh, a TV experiment uh, run by the uh, study group for systems research um, in 1971 called Oracle. Oracle was the first uh, uh, interactive TV show uh, in general in worldwide. And uh, it was also an experiment in public decision making uh, that used uh, television as a mechanism to uh, feed in different opinions, negotiate them, and come to a conclusion. So it was um, the TV studio was set up as a kind of expert uh, panel which discussed uh, a conflict in '71. It was about um, the environment and dangers for the environment and ways of uh, preserving it. And um, people could call in and uh, give opinions through a coded system. And these coded, uh, coded pieces of information were then uh, uh, fed into the discussion uh, panel and um, shifted the discussion to one side or another. The funny thing was that the whole uh, studio really looked like a diagram. Uh, to make people understand how it works and how information is processed in this um, studio setup. And uh, it's an interesting example also because uh, it shows a kind of ambivalent hope that existed for a while in the democratizing power of computers, that computers would enable to, uh, uh, meaning or opinions to uh, become more directly uh, verbalized and articulated. And uh, the fate of the study group for systems research um, itself shows uh, the kind, some of the kind of dead ends uh, for what started as a kind of hope into computer, computer democracy ended also with a study group into an optimization of government processes. So the study group worked in the end uh, mainly for the German government in developing routines for better information and uh, flows between different parts of the German government. So this was one um, exhibition we did that was uh, quite theoretical, but also quite um, thorough in its research of a spe very specific moment in, um, I guess, global um, planning history, trying to renegotiate and reimagine uh, uh, the relevance of users and uh, the criteria of planning in, in uh, relation to urban or design processes in general. Uh, in that case, we didn't really relate to the outer uh, context in Stuttgart, but there was a kind of historical connection because Ulm as a city is not far, and we touched on a lot of discourses um, that were present in Stuttgart at that time, and some of the people were still alive. So it was also a kind of uh, collective um, archaeological project with some of the people that were involved in these discourses uh, at the time, gathering material, gathering uh, the research, and all these uh, different approaches to such a topic. And it was interesting to see that um, how similar ideas popped up in different um, uh, contexts, especially John Turner was uh, quite an amazing example, but um, there were a few others that also dealt with um, different parts um, of uh, the world. Uh, the second project I wanted to present um, uh, took place in Bristol in 2014. It was called The Promise. And it was much more engaged with um, the fabric of the city itself, Bristol, 
because it started also with um, an observation in Bristol at the time. And that was um, the fate of um, architecture that's often dubbed uh, brutalist. Um, brutalism named after the concrete, uh, the uh, raw concrete that often appears in um, the facade design of these buildings, um, exposed uh, raw concrete. Um, in a way, it's late modernist architecture, uh, also that kind of global phenomenon since the uh, 1950s. Uh, and in the UK at that time, it was the, in a way, the most unpopular art, uh, architectural style that you could imagine. And um, wherever you, in all parts of the country, uh, this was a kind of architecture that was on the verge of being eliminated. We took some images, this is for example a building that uh, is kind of already half dilapidated and develops this slightly romantic flair being half overgrown. This is a more rough uh, situation with um, a kind of uh, walkway in the air, a kind of segregated uh, walking area, which was a kind of um, feature that appears in many of the of late modernist planning next to a car park. Uh, and this is a more prime example in London, Pimlico School, uh, a building from uh, the late 60s that was demolished actually in uh, 2010, so just before I arrived in the UK. And uh, what I like about this school is not just uh, the architecture, which is uh, experimental, friendly, tries some uh, obviously good things such as bringing uh, light into a school building in all kinds of angles, being very open to the environment, but also that uh, the building is actually built by, not by a single architect or an architecture office, but uh, by uh, a municipal uh, planning office. So the architect is not an enterprise, but it's a public service. And also the architect, so most of the, much of the architecture that's dubbed brutalist actually was created in this um, ethos of being a public service rather than a piece of investment or real estate. And it was interesting to see that in England at that time, in uh, uh, a country that was also undergoing significant um, changes on the socio-political uh, structure or fabric, uh, that uh, this kind of architecture as public service was uh, the least popular thing, while uh, architecture as investment was perceived as being more beautiful even though it was in terms of its service actually in quite a contrast to a kind of, uh, uh, it wasn't really accessible to, to, to anybody, it's private property. So we did a show that uh, tried to look at this kind of weird um, contradiction. And one part of the show was um, a display of uh, architectural models that were produced in Bristol over the past uh, 30, 40 years, showing different versions of the city that uh, in parts happened, in other parts, parts didn't happen, to show the kind of contingency of planning and uh, the kind of different uh, powers that are at play, at play in a planning process. Basically the fact that um, urban planning is always also a political um, debate, discourse, so it's up to uh, decisions by uh, and, and to a discourse and uh, to negotiation. 
whatever happens to be built is always a decision that somebody must have taken. We showed a big model that was produced for um, a city museum, which uh, used to be updated, but then uh, taken out of the display at some point. Lots of material about um, council housing, some more experimental um, modernist structures, late modernist structures, some quite radical also in uh, their approach towards an elimination of uh, historical built infrastructure and so on. And we commissioned a text by a writer, Jennifer Cabot, an American writer who has uh, done a lot of research about um, the social agenda of uh, uh, late modernist planning. And she wrote a, a, a kind of story based on many of the buildings that uh, existed in uh, Bristol, but um, yeah, were kind of bit by bit uh, destroyed. And this uh, text could be used as a kind of guide through the city to um, imagine some of the other aspects um, that are kind of not mentioned in the official um, planning narrative. Then another par important part of the show was um, a series of map maps that we created with um, different uh, groups in the city. So this was done by me together with um, a team of researchers and artists. It was quite a complex project. It was uh, a series of 10 maps and each map uh, consisted of three layers that assembled information about various aspects of the city. Some of these were more um, uh, official data such as um, the spread of wealth in the city, for example. Others were more absurd, like uh, the preferred um, nesting grounds for birds, or we worked with um, somebody who did a lot of uh, research into ancestry, so we had uh, a map of uh, cemeteries and um, where people came from who were actually buried in these cemeteries. We had um, a map with um, shipping routes. Bristol is also a shipping city, so where did boats go that actually left from Bristol, and so on. But these, group, these maps were all produced with um, groups dealing with these aspects, so it was in a way also a kind of, each map was a portrait for a specific interest or take or reading of uh, the city. And layering them and combining them showed some of the connections, but also disparities. And uh, in a nice way, this, I mean, we worked with um, so 10 maps, each map had three layers, was uh, around 30 groups. This, uh, so this was also, in a way, a kind of assembly, an assembly of uh, uh, a wide array of um, different communities and groups that were present in that exhibition. There was another exhibition part with um, artistic contributions and a display of uh, furniture by Marcel Breuer produced for Bristol, but I wanted to show some, uh, so the, the, the second big part besides the exhibition at Arnolfini was um, a set of uh, commissions in um, the urban realm, um, works we produced with artists. Uh, this is um, by New Zealand artist Kate Newby. Uh, she made, it's, I'm not sure if it's visible, it's a red rope. That's here uh, running around the building on the top floor. This is the hugest building in Bristol. And uh, it's a bit like um, a drawing or like a hand-drawn 
top line on the building. But it's really quite high, so it was a very thick rope and uh, widely visible in the city as a kind of poetic marker. Further works for her. She did, a, I think, in total six interventions in the city. This was one. This was the second one. It's, uh, she created a, an, an additional small exhibition space in the former functions room of a bridge uh, that, uh, where she presented uh, casted surfaces from the city. So with clay and glass, she uh, took casts from surfaces from uh, walkways, from building facades and so on, and um, presented them there as a kind of uh, recording of uh, city surfaces. Uh, this was a work by Oscar Tourson, a French-American uh, sculptor. Replaced, it was placed in the Bristol Commons, a very old park that was uh, created as an empty land in the middle of the city. Uh, but because it's an historic uh, parkland, it comes with a lot of restrictions, so this, uh, it's not allowed to barbecue, for example, which creates often conflicts. So Oscar um, decided to build uh, a massive barbecue pit that's uh, placed on a, a concrete platform. And uh, it also looks a bit like, um, like a folly, like a classic park. Uh, piece of uh, architecture of, uh, as a kind of attraction. It also whistles, by the way. Once it's uh, lit and on fire, it uh, also whistles. And so this was like a sculpture that was uh, placed in the park, but it was also, it was basically, it was standing there open, so it could be just used by people to light a fire and have a barbecue. But we also had the uh, occasional um, uh, barbecue parties or events where we invited different restaurants, groups, um, to host um, events that were um, barbecue-based. Yeah, he's done, uh, for the last sculpture project in Münster, he did uh, a kind of new version of that. We did a, um, a longer project with uh, an architecture group uh, from England called Assemble. They... Uh, have a practice that is uh, based on participatory designing processes, often very hands-on. And for our exhibition, they decided that they don't want to really build something. I have invited them to, to think about a project that uh, makes use of uh, the learning program at Arnolfini and uh, a second uh, organization, the National Trust, who has some very beautiful parklands in uh, the city and we invited them to, to, to um, initially to create a kind of play structure or so, but they decided to do a, a project that's um, not building based but instead develops a policy as a piece of architecture, so a kind of immaterial piece of architecture that points to aspects that structure use of space without being itself built. So they um, did workshops with children where children were asked to develop uh, uh, their own playing activities in um, a wooden area and gathered kind of principles and rules from uh, observing the kids and put them in writing as a piece of um, policy that could be then used by Arnolfini and the National Trust. And then uh, the last 
uh, of these public commissions was with uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah Day, a photographer. He made a piece uh, for an underpass uh, that uh, basically was uh, built in uh, the, yeah, the 60s and or 70s and um, uh, was accompanied, the building process was accompanied by uh, huge uh, controversies about um, the destructions of parts of the inner city, but um, an even harsher uh, real reality that was created by this uh, street is that uh, the city is really divided into two parts. One is the historically more affluent part, the other part is the historically poorer part, and now the street in between really separates these um, two parts of the city. But people have to still commute between the two areas, uh, and they have to basically go through this underpass uh, each time they have to go to the other city, other part of the city. And Jeremiah did um, a piece which functions in, in, in a way like um, a photo exhibition, tracing this history and some of the protests around this uh, under, uh, 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 this um, highway in the city as something to um, for people to see. Then it's called um, yeah response to a brief from a Bristol, Bristol radical historian because we involved um, yeah uh, is. Uh, a DIY historian uh, with this um, in this uh, planning process of the piece, and it, uh, he was coming up with with, with these questions like, "What can art do in such a context? What is art for?" Uh, and yeah, Jeremiah tried to find a solution to answer this question. Yeah, that was um, the exhibition in Bristol. We I did a second iteration. Uh, while I was uh, in uh, Stockholm, which was interesting because the city functions uh, in a very different way, even like looking at the role of uh, modernist architecture in uh, the city context is, um, is very different. In Stockholm, it's almost like uh, a kind of uh, stage set or so. Stockholm looks like a beautiful modernist uh, city in many parts, but um, the reality is mostly it's uh, privatized, it's uh, very expensive real estate. Um, so the look is, uh, has all the kind of um, qualities of um, decentralized planning, um, modest uh, low-income housing, but actually uh, it's very expensive and um, refined and um, sought after. So um, the, 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 this show uh, in, in Bristol in, in, in Stockholm took a very different shape. Um, instead of um, a kind of historical display, we invited a lot of uh, current uh, act urbanist activist groups uh, from the city to present uh, their agenda and what they do at index in the exhibition space uh, with the aim of, and the it was based on the observation that um, a lot of groups dealt with similar issues in Stockholm, but they didn't communicate with each other because they were all also active in very different parts of the city, but fighting similar forces of segregation, of commercialization. So one aim was to bring them all together and uh, uh, also accept, in a way, the, diff the very different and diverse um, aesthetic choices and uh, ways of articulating um, the agenda. 
But the, uh, the project that I wanted to um, talk about um, is a different one for Stockholm. It's a project that we made with um, British artist Stephen Willits. Uh, he's, um, I'm not sure if anybody knows his work. He uh, is one of the main um, protagonists of, of British uh, conceptual art, um, active at least since the 1970s, and often working also with um, community groups, often in council housing, producing projects that um, articulates some of the wishes and ideas that are otherwise unseen in these um, uh, contexts or situations. Uh, we invited him to do a new project and he started to also like very quickly observing the kind of uh, radical segregation in the city that um, the inner city is very exclusive uh, and predominantly white. Uh, the suburbs are very um, multicultural. A lot of people uh, that have moved there uh, in the past 10, 20 years. And very little uh, interaction or communication between uh, these different areas in the city. In a way, one could say the subway is the most um, diverse place uh, because that's how people travel from one place to the other. But uh, otherwise, there's very little. Um, interaction. So what he did was he uh, started working with um, three people that um, agreed to work with him from three different parts of uh, the city. One uh, woman working in the neighborhood of Index um, and uh, two other people working in two different um, suburbs. He invited uh, them to work with him and um, his starting point was to look into radical shifts in their life and how these shifts um, played out for them being positioned in a moment where they had to basically redecide uh, about their life and um, also redesign uh, their ambitions and uh, plans completely. So in a way this project was for us with Index also a way to explore not only our own neighborhood but also uh, the social reality of um, wider Stockholm and to understand the relationship of this part of the inner city, Kungsholmen, um, towards the rest of um, the city. Now, these are two examples of um, these um, panels that uh, Stephen Willits made. Um, he's usually uh, working with uh, uh, his collaborators um, on these photo panels. They, uh, he, uh, he's inviting them or he's asking them to take photographs of objects of their surrounding and then uh, their um, putting them together in a way that's kind of based on his own methodology, also using quotes from uh, interview they made. And uh, one side of the panel always shows the person and the other one, uh, the context. Uh, in this case, it's um, the living room uh, of the flat where this person lived. So maybe important to say that one of these panels was presented each person was represented with two panels and one was in the exhibition space and the other one was outside in um, uh, the gardens around um, index as a kind of public, like a public announcement boards. And then the second uh, very important part uh, were videos uh, that are made with the Super 8 camera. So film, um, it's a very simple Super 8 camera that uh, Stephen hands over to uh, his collaborators asking them to uh, film pieces of written information in their surrounding, like recording their own 
environment by pointing the camera and simply pressing on and off. So there's no real possibility or as little possibility as possible to um, control or um, uh, shape the image. It's really just recording. And um, so his interest in, is in, in this kind of uh, textual fragments. So people record um, graffiti, but also stickers, signs. It's uh, the kind of the way in which um, an environment expresses itself through these kind of pieces of information, and also how people interact with it. They add something or scratch it over, or in case of graffiti, uh, kind of um, violently um, overwrite something. So these are kind of uh, very beautifully made uh, portraits of uh, a context that are made in a kind of very easy way and that are also then, as an end result, you can kind of compare them and you can really see, you can detect some kind of qualities of these different areas. So this is one of the panels in the outside. And we also presented some of the films in, then in other contexts and index in shop windows. This is in uh, Husby, in one of the, in, that's the uh, suburb where um, one of the participants is living. So we presented these uh, videos also in a kind of public square there in a cafe. And then he made some uh, uh, cybernetic diagrams that uh, were produced as um, stickers that could be taken by visitors and then um, inserted, reinserted again in the flow of information in the city. Yeah, I didn't speak much about uh, Bergen. One reason is that uh, the program is uh, just shaping up there. I can uh, uh, maybe point out some of the elements that will play a role in uh, a similar project that we're planning for 2020, which will also deal again with the city and with um, the specific conditions um, in which Bergen developed and the forces that are still, until today, very present through the history and the contemporary socioeconomic reality of the city, which is um, the relation of um, Bergen to the ocean. Uh, Bergen was uh, founded basically as a trading, as a trading uh, post for uh, salted cod, for uh, stockfish uh, from northern Norway towards the south. Um, and that became hugely commercialized then when uh, the Hanse opened uh, uh, an office, a contour in Bergen, which still exists until today as a kind of tourist attraction as Brüggen. Um, so the Hanse still has a kind of uh, huge presence in the city as a history. And then uh, until today, uh, for example, there's uh, a lot of uh, flying connections between Bergen and London. In a way, London feels almost closer to Bergen than Trondheim, for example, or other Norwegian cities because of the ocean and because of a tradition of, uh, or history of um, ocean-based uh, travels for the city. And then, of course, um, Bergen is also in a huge part um, uh, involved in oil and gas-based industries that uh, are a very important part of the economy in Norway as a whole. And, um, uh, the oil uh, wealth of coming from oil um, 
created a kind of boom uh, of, uh, in Norway in the past 20 years. And uh, ironically, uh, also now, um, post-oil industries and research is um, uh, creating, the, oh, kind of uh, building up uh, the next boom now, uh, also in Bergen, like new technologies, solar-based te technologies, and so on. So this will be um, a project that we start working on now uh, for 2020, where we again invite artists to look at these kind of um, um, aspects and how they play out in the city, in the everyday fabric, the built infrastructure, but also how the city works um, as a uh, social sphere. Maybe we should stop here. And uh, if there are questions, I'm happy to talk further. Um, going back to that, uh, the Brutalist School in, uh, was it in Bristol? No, that's actually in London. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, do you know what led to it being uh, pulled down in 2010? Was it because everyone hated it or? It's two aspects. One is that uh, they are, so they're built uh, uh, with uh, building standards that uh, are not up to current um, building laws. They are using too much energy, so they would need to be uh, reconfigured and renovated. Uh, that's one aspect, of that's the, the, that was the main argument, that uh, they're too old, need renovation, and building a new is cheaper than renovating uh, the old st structure. But then uh, there was no ambition to save any of these buildings or to uh, invest in them, because there was in general a consensus that um, it's not a uh, appreciated style. We had one of those buildings until last year called the Queensland College of Art that was there from the 70s that they didn't renovate either and they knocked it down. It was a very interesting, brutalist building. Mm. Um, it sounds like you're from Berlin. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, going from Berlin to Stockholm, because you know, you're talking about how Stockholm's this very privatised sort of um, exclusive, expensive place. Um, and uh, I know Berlin's very... Um, it's a place where people sort of... Um, they enjoy the public spaces as their own. What is your feeling between the two places? Like, having lived in those two places, do you, do you feel more... Uh, yeah, what, what, what is your feeling? <laughs> I mean, Berlin is also changing now a lot, obviously, and uh, or has been changing over the past 29 years a lot. Um, I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm still amazed, like it, uh, uh, it took even the, uh, neoliberal capitalism quite a long time to reshape East Berlin. So uh, uh, still also, I mean, it's um, even as East Berlin was, uh, rebuilt with very poor means and a lot of effort and, uh, and it wasn't uh, so bad. And um, in, I mean, in terms of, so I think it's, it's, it's uh, Berlin's also changing a lot and uh, it's getting more expensive. Um, there's uh, a huge uh, industry around parties. 
uh, about investments also from um, all, uh, I think North, some Scandinavian countries invested a lot. Um, um, but, uh, I mean, um, Sto Stockholm is, uh, maybe the, re the reality is much harsher, I think, but it doesn't really uh, play out in the way that um, the inner city looks. Everything's very pretty and everything is very uh, well in order and in place, but there's actually very little um, space uh, actually available or um, something like free space doesn't exist. If there's something uh, not really developed yet, it won't take very long. Um, as an outsider coming into these different cities, is there um, a balance that you try and strike between dealing with local artists, local um, figures, obviously with the maps, it was sort of very much about working yeah. with local groups that sort of talk to the city itself that you're um, in, but, or is there, is there more of an emphasis placed on the outsider seeing the city with fresh eyes, or is, is that, I mean, what's the... Huh. Okay, I, I mean, I can start with a kind of uh, very uh, ego um, approach, which is like, uh, for me, it's such a project, these projects were always also tools um, to understand a city or to approach um, a city and uh, just a kind of context in which I'm working. So a, pro a project is then also a framework to start with research, start, um, making connections, uh, creating these kind of uh, networks with organizations or people. Uh, but then I think it's also uh, extremely helpful to, to bring in experts or friends or people with uh, an opinion or an approach who maybe don't know that city so well to... Um, uh, yeah, br yeah, bring in some, uh, like a new perspective or so, yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess every city in the world has uh, the tendency to also always close off a bit and know already everything. And um, yeah, to, to, to break that up a bit by uh, uh, yeah, bringing in a different uh, opinion or approach or even just a, just a reason to talk. I guess it's, and explain, I mean, it's yeah. sort of fitting as well, given so many of the architects that are brought in then, or that shape cities aren't necessarily from the city itself. Yeah, yeah, true. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.